I'm Luke. I'm John. This week we're looking at music shows. The weekend starts here. Uh, it's a podcast. We don't know when people are listening. Be there or be ungroovy for. They spend their whole lives watching TV. Now they're sharing their opinions with you. Because now they want to have some fun. With a channel that is all brand new. Get comfy and without further ado. No choose the shows that you want to view. Welcome to Cracking TV. We're Luke and John, and we're on a mission to create the dream schedule for our own network, Cracking TV. Each episode, we'll be talking about classic shows from a particular genre, picking one to fill a slot in our schedule. We'll be taking it in turns to be the commissioner in the picture. The pitcher will bring a number of shows in the hope of scoring that big commission. However, the commissioner has already got a first-rate show in mind. The pitcher desperately wants one of his shows to win and avoid the embarrassment of being thrown out of the commissioner's office. This week, I'm the commissioner. John, thanks for coming in. I've asked you to pitch some music shows. Please make my slot sing. Yes, and let's get something straight from the start. I'm not going to be pitching Top of the Pops. Oh, really? Not because it wasn't brilliant, but quite the reverse. It was just too big and too important to show, and I think it would win the commission too easily. So in order to make sure that we get a show out of this, I'm not going to pitch it today. And also, we could cover it some other time. We could maybe do a Top of the Pops special. Interesting. So what's your first show going to be then? My first show is going to be Ready, Steady, Go. Going back in time. Back in time to 1963. Cast your mind back that far. I know you remember it well, Luke. Hang on, you're older than me. We'd had some pop music TV shows before. There'd been 6-5 special. It'd be Thank Your Lucky Stars. And over in the US, they'd had American Bandstand. Yes. But they were all sort of quite traditional shows. They were light entertainment TV shows that had a format that was born out of that sort of traditional comedy and crooner music style. They weren't reflective of what was really changing in youth culture. Yeah. Because in 1963, youth culture is absolutely exploding. Obviously, you've got The Beatles and that birth of really exciting raucous British rock and roll that was unlike anything we'd heard before. And remind me, where are the Beatles from? The Beatles are from Liverpool oh, and yeah. changed the world, but let's not focus on that too much. Because other things were going on as well as the Beatles, right? There was the contraceptive pill, there were changing attitudes towards sex, deference to the establishment, clothes. Mm. All these things were changing really, really rapidly, and TV up to this point had done nothing to try to keep up with that. The UK was sort of coming out of being quite a repressed society I suppose. I think if you were to put TV on in 1963 and watch most programmes it would feel like you were still in the 50s. It still felt like a post-war world. Yeah sure. Elkin Allen who was the executive producer at Associated Rediffusion felt like he wanted to do something about it. Associated Rediffusion, of course, had the ITV London weekday franchise at the time. Yep. And he wanted to make a show that would reflect this pop culture explosion. Yes. Someone who was working for him was a young woman called Vicky Wickham. She'd done a bit of work in radio, but she didn't really have any TV experience. She didn't have a vast amount of production experience at all. But she managed to convince Elkin Allen that she was the person to produce this new show. 
Oh, like how you're pitching to me. Exactly. Well, like me, she was a young person herself. Yeah, yeah. And sort of viscerally understood what was happening. Yeah. And that's the reason why she got the gig. And I think for those two reasons, but also just because of her inexperience, she made something that broke all of the rules. She didn't know what the rules were. Exactly. So instinctively, she was just going about making a TV show without really following any predetermined format of what a TV show should be. Yeah. She came up with Ready Steady Go. It started as a magazine show with music segments, but quite quickly the music segments took over and it became a pop music show. I mean, she must have had talent, right? Because one thing that could have happened if you go into a show like that with no experience is that it's an absolute disaster. But clearly it wasn't. Well, I remember when I first started working in TV production, I worked on an arts show which deliberately broke all of the rules of television. And one thing we concluded from it was that there was a reason why the rules of television (laughs) were there. Yeah. I mean, it was unwatchable. Right. So just setting out to break the rules for its own sake isn't always going to give you great results. So you're right, you do need talent. You need to be plugged in and to understand the audience that you're trying to make a show for. Yeah. And I think that's what Ready, Steady, Go got absolutely right. Right. It was live. It hadn't been massively rehearsed. And what happened, happened. And sometimes that was disastrous. Like one time Sandy Shaw was supposed to be singing and no floor manager told her to go out onto the stage. (laughs) So the stage was just empty. Her microphone was there. The music was playing, but there was nobody in front of the mic. You kind of saw things like the cameras, didn't you? Things got in shot that traditionally wouldn't. Great big studio cameras were roving all around the studio. And probably for TV audiences up until then, they'd never seen those before. Yeah. It was really breaking the spell of television and showing you what was going on in a way that, you know, was completely anarchic. It made it feel authentic. Absolutely authentic and a real, like, live nightclub happening feel. Yeah. Some of the early shows were presented by Dusty Springfield. Oh, right. And she's one of the most important performers on the show. And as we'll hear, was really important to the show behind the scenes as well, sort of throughout its run. Okay. But the best known presenters were Keith Fordyce and Kathy McGowan. Mm. Keith Fordyce, he looked like a middle-aged man. He was wearing a suit and tie, very received pronunciation, very professional, very slick, what you were used to seeing on TV. Okay. But Kathy McGowan was very young, very beautiful, very stylish. Stylish, but very down to earth, very normal. She had like a normal Southeast accent and she just seemed excited to be there, excited to be around the bands. Like for the first time as a young person, this must have felt like yourself and your friends being represented directly on TV. Sure. It's an interesting combination, isn't it? That you have the older person who is professional and is really good, but then you have the younger person who's a bit more anarchic. Yeah, absolutely. It probably helped the producers to think, well, we've got Keith there who is experienced and knows what he's doing and we'll stop it from falling apart completely. But we've got Kathy who can be in the moment and energetic and enthusiastic and really bring the excitement to the screen. Oh, like you do on this podcast. (laughs) It used to go out early on a Friday evening and it would start with the line, the weekend starts here. Mm. And then you'd hear a bit of really exciting music as the theme tune. At first it was Wipeout by the Safaris, but later and probably most famously, it was Five Four three two one by Manfred Mann. Yeah, that's the classic. Five four three two one. 
Yeah, and later that was replaced by Hubble Bubble Toil and Trouble by Manfred Mann. And then finally it had Going Home by the Rolling Stones as the theme song. Okay. Now you have to remember this is a time before Top of the Pops existed. Yes. Before Radio 1 existed. Yeah. This was where you would see and hear the pop acts of the day. This show actually started even before Radio Caroline, you know, probably the most famous of all the pirate radio stations, because that started in 1964. Wow, yeah. So artists would appear before you knew who they were. They might have had a single out, but this was the thing that propelled them to fame. We're talking about The Who? I don't know, you tell me. The Who? Yeah, Who? Yes, The Who. I don't know. Who? Yes. They were later, you idiot. I see you at third base. The Beatles were on. That makes more sense. The Hollies, the Zombies, Dusty Springfield, as I mentioned. The Walker Brothers, the Kinks, the Rolling Stones, Donovan, Dave Clark Five, Bobby V, the Animals, Georgie Fame and the Blue Flames, Billy Fury, Lulu, Gene Pitney. The Beach Boys made their first appearance on British television on the show. Wow. And it's just the list of all the classic acts we now associate with the 60s, right? Absolutely. The Small Faces, the Yardbirds, them, featuring a 19-year-old Van Morrison in his first appearance on British TV. My dad became a big fan of The Who when he was 14 from seeing them on Ready Steady Go. And I guess it just led to a lifetime of loving them. Exactly. It was all mimed. Right. You know, you might get people being sniffy about that and saying, well, shouldn't proper musicians be playing live? But I'm going to say for the purposes of this format, that sort of argument is bullshit because if you didn't have to concentrate on playing, then they could make genuinely exciting TV. Right, yes. So there would be really strange camera angles. They'd use strange parts of the studio. So you'd see Dusty singing from in the lighting rig. You'd see Lulu coming down the studio stairs, but not fake prop studio stairs, just the stairs that are in the studio. Yeah. Bands would be standing on a platform that was being pulled around by ropes and they'd just be getting pulled around and around the studio. I mean, it was absurd. Obviously, you couldn't be playing live doing this, but it looked phenomenal. And again, you have to put yourself in the mind of somebody watching it in 1963 or 1964, thinking, I've never seen anything like this before. This is just crazy stuff. No, absolutely. And the audience were feeling that vibe. If you see the bands performing, they're standing in the middle of the crowd. Often they're not even on a stage. They'll just be standing with a guitar in the middle of the crowd. And the audience are going mad, literally touching them. It was breaking down that divide between audience and performer in a way that was genuinely groundbreaking. It was originally filmed at Rediffusions HQ at Kingsway in London. And apparently the studio was so small. That's why it was so intimate. It's why you saw the cameras. And there was no room to build a set. Yeah, that's right. I think it was in a basement and yeah, there there was no set. There was just craziness and anarchy and it probably came from the fact that Rediffusion weren't taking the show very seriously or giving it a lot of budget. But what it meant is that you could make something that didn't look or feel like anything else on TV. Yeah. One thing about the audience is that as well as being really excited, they really could dance. So unlike on top of the pops, you know, where you would see people guiltily shifting from side to side (laughs) and looking like they don't want to be there. The way they'd get the audience for Ready Steady Go is that Vicky Wickham, the producer, would go around the cool nightclubs and choose the coolest people and invite them to be on the show. Top of the Pops obviously did have sort of professional dancers in to do a bit of that, but I guess that was only a tiny proportion of the audience. They were there to try and encourage the others. Yeah. Ready City Go is basically just full of people like that. Yeah, they'd have the really cool mod faces of the time in there, looking cool, sharply dressed and dancing really well. Wow. And there would be a segment in the show where they'd show the TV viewing audience how to do these dances, like how to do the mashed potato. So it was a real way of disseminating the the youth culture that otherwise might have just stayed in some swinging London clubs. Yeah. The show was a huge influence on fashion as well. So Kathy, the presenter, 
her look was very sort of Mary Quant, Carnaby Street, really cool mod 60s fashion, mini skirts, boots, heavy mascara. Again, that sort of look might have stayed quite localised to within, you know, a couple of miles of London if it hadn't have been for Ready Steady Go spreading it out there and making it accessible. And then it was available on the high streets. Indeed, Kathy started her own high street fashion line. So you think it spread the 60s fashion quite wide then? There's a version of the universe where swinging London only happens for David Hockney and a few pop stars if it isn't for Ready Steady Go, making it accessible to the whole nation. Wow. Speaking of David Hockney, he would be hanging out backstage. All the pop stars of the day were hanging out backstage while the show was going out, even if they weren't on that episode. Hmm. It was like the cool place to be in London on a Friday evening. They'd go and watch Ready Steady Go, hang out there. Then they'd obviously fall out of that and go to some club afterwards. Yeah, exactly. Obviously, the BBC noticed what was happening and they launched Top of the Pops as their sort of rival or spoiler in 1964. Top of the Pops then went on for decades, but it was never as cool as Ready Steady Go. Mm. One of the directors on Ready Steady Go, probably uh, the, the most influential director, was Michael Lindsay Hogg. He would later go on to direct Let It Be. And that footage has, of course, resurfaced recently as Peter Jackson's Get Back. Yeah. And he made loads of promo videos for the Beatles and the Rolling Stones because the pop stars of the day really liked working with him. For the first time, and this was on Ready, Steady, Go, the cameras were forming part of the art, like how music was being visually represented in video format in a way that was sympathetic to what the artist was trying to do was just a thing that had never been done before. If you were the Rolling Stones on TV before then, it would be, you know, wide shot, mid shot, close up on Mick, wide shot, close up on the guitar. Whereas Michael Lindsay Hogg was like, let's do something interesting that matches with the ideas of what you're trying to do musically. Sure. When The Who played Any Way, Anyhow, Anywhere, Lindsay Hogg famously got the camera shaking violently <laughs> while they were having like drum solos and, and guitar freakouts. That's so cool. It's an amazing bit of footage that absolutely fantastic and so exciting. If you'd been watching that at home as a 14 year old, I just think you'd have gone, my mind is blown. Yeah. 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 Like this is everything that I want in life. I want to drop out of school and be a rock star. That's what you would have thought. Yeah. When the Rolling Stones did paint it black, Mick was on stage. And again, this is Michael Lindsay Hogg directing and Mick would wave one of his arms at certain points in the song and some of the studio lights would go out. So at the start, the whole studio was lit up and then he's singing painted black and pointing in a direction and those lights go out. And that happens continuously throughout the song until there's just one spotlight on Mick. That's so cool. The first time ever that television performance is an art in itself. Yeah. And remember, this is all done live. So Mm. there's people sitting in the gallery reacting to what Mick's doing on stage. I mean, that must have been incredible, being in the gallery. Yeah. If you were actually the director or or the the vision mixer, if you were there doing it, wouldn't that have been the best job? Absolutely. And you're you're not replicating something that's been done before. You're inventing an art form live on TV as it's happening. Yeah, that's brilliant. The show famously had a lot of black American acts because that's what had influenced the British bands who were Mm. so prominently featured. And this was really new to British TV. You would not have seen black American acts on TV up until this point. This is where Dusty Springfield was really important to the show because she was really good friends with Vicky Wickham. Okay. And when Dusty Springfield was touring America, she would phone Vicky and say, this is what's hot, this is what's happening in America and you should book these acts. Oh, wow. Tamla Motown did a big tour of the UK in 1965, but wasn't selling tickets at all. Dusty said they should be on TV. 
And so she agreed to host a special of Ready Steady Go called The Sound of Motown. It's one of the best things that's ever been on British TV. This is The Supremes, Little Stevie Wonder, Martha and the Vandellas. Motown's studio band, the Funk Brothers, who are usually confined to the studio in Detroit, were allowed to come over, so they're there as well. Mm. And it's just so exciting, Dusty singing along with Martha and the Vandellas, getting to see the young Stevie Wonder absolutely electrifying the audience. Yeah. It's just a fantastic bit of television. Brilliant. Yeah, they were not afraid to really push things. Uh, In 1965, they did a James Brown special. Sadly, that's been deleted, so we can't see any footage of it at all now. But what we do know is that lots of people were shocked that they just weren't ready for James Brown being what James Brown is, which is an uncompromising version of himself. You know, Mm. he is not toning himself down for a white audience or a British audience. He's just James Brown. There were loads of newspaper headlines that were shocked by his performance. People were calling in to complain. There's a lot of racism behind that as well, of course. And, And this show just wasn't afraid to go ahead and show these acts performing as they performed. I mean, I'm not a huge James Brown fan, but I'd rather have James Brown doing James Brown than a watered-down version. Absolutely. In 1966, they did an Otis Redding special, which does still exist and is absolutely magical. Jimi Hendrix made his first ever television appearance in Britain on Ready, Steady, Go, performing Hey Joe, and he actually did perform live. So he wasn't well known in the UK. He did that performance. His club tour sold out. He was added to a nationwide tour by the Walker Brothers, and the rest is history with Jimi Hendrix. (laughs) And then it all came to an end quite suddenly. 23rd of December, 1966. Ratings had started to drop quite dramatically, probably because of Top of the Pops. Yeah. But also because Ready Steady Go was about a particular youth moment. It was capturing a zeitgeist at that moment. Exactly. It wasn't designed or supposed to be a a long-running music show that would evolve as music evolved. Top of the Pops necessarily did that because it was based on the charts and therefore it would reflect what was happening. But yeah, Ready Steady Go was about British mod bands and American soul and R&B. That's what defined it. And then when music moved on into sort of more psychedelic, for example, music, then obviously Ready Steady Go was not the right format for that. Top of the Pops was a format that could evolve. But if you were standing on a platform being pulled by a rope, then you would revolve. (laughs) You would. That's my picture, Ready, Steady, Go. I think it was absolutely vital in the evolution of British music television and British youth culture. If I was putting it up against Top of the Pops, then maybe you would say, well, it only ran for a few years, so we've got to choose Top of the Pops because it's this behemoth of British TV. But since we're not putting it up against Top of the Pops, I think Ready, Steady, Go would just be a fantastic, exciting feature in the cracking TV schedule. Well, you've got me really excited. Even if it were against Top of the Pops, you've got to put a lot of credence into it being the first show and really capturing that moment, bringing an excitement that most people wouldn't have been exposed to. Because even if you lived in the London area and the stuff was happening around you, it's still a relatively limited number of people who are going out clubbing. And there's more people that will enjoy the music. It all sounds very exciting. Yeah, and without Ready Steady Go, would there ever have been a Top of the Pops? It's not certain. Well, that was a great pitch for a very exciting show, and you're in with a good chance. Thank you very much. What's your second pitch? Exciting isn't the word for this show, but it's still important and good. Okay. The old grey whistle test. We need to start talking very quietly, don't we? Yes, exactly. We need to be very calm. But also very intense. 
very intense and very serious because music yeah. is a very serious business now. It is. We've moved on from Ready Steady Go and the excitement of youth culture and we've grown beards, we've got our hair long and we want to have a bloody good think and a scratch. Yes. So <laughs> this was devised by BBC producer Rowan Ayres and it was commissioned by David Attenborough. It aired on BBC Two from 1971 all the way through to 1988. Oh, that's a long time, isn't it? And well, I'm sure we'll talk about the music that they covered, but I mean, a lot changed in music between 1971 and 1988. Absolutely. And did this show really keep up? Well, that's the, mm. the key question. The Old Grey Whistle Test is a strange title for a show. Do you know where it comes from? I do. Isn't it if you made a tune and the Old Greys could whistle it, then it would pass the test? But the question is, who are the Old Greys? I've heard it suggested that they could literally be old men with grey hair, but don't think that's actually the story, is it? I think the story is that it was Tin Pan Alley, you know, where the professional songwriters would work in the old days of New York. Oh, yeah. And the Old Greys were the doormen on the buildings. They were the ones who heard the songs and then were challenged to whistle them the next day. Ah, very good. Now, this was a late night show, and that's important to its feeling, really. It focused not on chart hits, so very much not top of the pops. This was about albums, serious musicians and artists performing live, no miming, no audience. So a real move away from that ready, steady, go feeling. This is just the band in the studio. Right. A very bare studio as well, so no effects. No flashing lights, no fancy camera angles, just serious musicians doing the serious business of music. For the TV centre nerds, I mean, it was in a presentation studio. I think it was in Pres B. I mean, that was a tiny, tiny studio. The other studio of that size was used for the weather. Oh, wow. So, you know, one of the reasons why it had to show the Bear Wars, there was literally no space for a set. Right, yeah. They would play obscure music that if you read the music press, you would have heard of, but you would never see on Top of the Pops. Yeah. Randy Newman, Leonard Skinner, who played Freebird one time for what must have lasted about 463 days. <laughs> um, and it was live. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was late at night on BBC Two, and it was just like, well, we'll just keep going until they finish. It's the last programme of the day, I guess. Yeah. Obviously, it's keeping people behind, and everyone there is probably happy because they're earning overtime. <laughs> <laughs> Bob Marley and the Whalers were on, David Bowie, Roxy Music, Super Tramp, Captain Beefheart, Curtis Mayfield, so it wasn't all white men, mm. Alice Cooper, the sensational Alex Harvey band. It was music that could be strange and disturbing, both in the music itself and also the way it was performed. Again, remember, this is a very late night show. Yes. Prog rock was a big part of what the old Grey Whistle Test was about, and Rick Wakeman was there playing quite a different role than the last time we met him in Countdown's Dictionary Corner. Absolutely. This time he's wearing a big cape and playing lengthy keyboard solos about King Arthur on ice or whatever. And of course, Arthur became the theme tune to the BBC's election coverage. <laughs> right, yeah. Prog rock was very important, but they'd also have jazz, country, blues, folk, reggae. Anything that was like serious music would be allowed on. Mm. It was quite male, quite yeah. beardy, quite studenty in its audience. You could imagine that people who were watching it were smoking weed or dropping acid or at least thinking about doing those things. Yeah, and all the people working on it. Absolutely, that did seem to be the vibe as well. Sometimes an act couldn't perform, like Led Zeppelin would never perform on TV. So if you had acts like that, then they would show crazy old black and white song and dance videos that had been timed to match with the music. So again, you know, the sort of thing that you can imagine stoned people doing at home. You know, that, <laughs> that thing of if you watch The Wizard of Oz whilst listening to Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, they match up perfectly. 
really any visual will, will match up to any bit of audio if you're stoned, right? <laughs> well, but, yeah. but yeah, that was the vibe of the show. The first host of it was Richard Williams, who was features editor of Melody Maker. Yeah. But he was quite soon replaced by the person who is the archetype of that era of the old Grey Whistle Test, which is Bob Harris. Yeah. He joined in 1972 and he's nicknamed Whispering Bob Harris because of his quiet voice and laid back style the jazz club host on the far show is kind of based on him nice great yes it's a parody of of that sort of presentation definitely bob was a typical hippie long hair beard very nice guy yeah clearly understood this music extremely well this was his thing and he absolutely loved it Mm. with some exceptions okay he became notorious amongst the younger generation of viewers because when roxy music were first on Bob Harris sort of said, just because we play music doesn't mean we recommend it, and very publicly distanced himself from Roxy. And in 1973, when the New York Dolls were on, Bob came out of that piece saying, mock rock. Oh, dear. So that was not his thing at all. So you can see how, when punk came along, obviously with a big influence from the New York Dolls and a first splattering of Roxy music as well, then it wasn't for Bob. The punks hated Bob, and they hated everything about what the old Grey Whistle show represented at that time. Sid Vicious saw Bob out and about and attacked him with broken glass. Oh dear. Which I think perfectly encaptures the hippie versus punk schism Mm. and whispering Bob Harris versus Sid Vicious. Yeah. Bob had definitely fallen out of tune with the times. He felt he'd become the Ken Barlow of rock in his own (laughs) words. So he left the show in 1978. Annie Nightingale took over as host and having a female host of a rock show was quite a big thing at the time. Yeah. And Annie fitted far more into the late 70s scene than Bob could have done. So she was able to present the Ramones, the adverts, Susie and the Banshees, John Cooper Clark, the Damned, Blondie, the Police, Ian Jury and the Blockheads, the Specials. It's interesting that we talked about Ready, Steady, Go not being able to evolve. Here's our first revolution from the Bob Harris era to the Annie Nightingale era. They have genuinely changed, but they've kept it the same show. Yes, I think it's probably fair to say that it it did survive that first transition pretty well and Mm. that the show that it became under Annie Nightingale was a different show, but a really good show in its own right. Yeah. The Stranglers memorably appeared on an offshoot show called Rock Goes to College. Ah, yes. This is when they went and played Guildford University. That's right. Guildford band, but they hate the university. BBC sold most of the tickets to the university students and the Stranglers weren't happy. Have you all got your Cracker Jack pencils? There, stick them up your asses, then. <laughs> Squeeze appeared on the show and their keyboard player, Jules Holland, was obviously paying attention because he would make <laughs> liberal use of the format in future decades. It would become his career. Yep. When Annie Nightingale left in 1982, they had a rotation of Mark Ellen, David Hepworth and Richard Skinner taking turns as presenters. Very much music journalist style presenters, a little bit dishevelled. And the show went through various changes. They moved it to mid-evening, so it had been a late night show, but now it was live in the mid-evening. Yeah. They changed the title, they dropped the old and the grey, and it just became the whistle test. Right. I think they lost confidence. They were trying and failing to remain relevant, and they were being shown up by Channel 4, which had started showing the tube, which we'll talk about in a moment. Yeah. So it's 1983 when they made this change. And as you said earlier, it runs through till 88. Yes. And so they fail to evolve and they're just struggling on. I think that's right. In 1984, they got a fourth presenter in the rotation, Andy Kershaw. And those four presenters, Andy Kershaw, Mark Allen, David Hepworth and Richard Skinner, of course, are the presenters of the BBC's coverage of Live Aid in 1985. Yeah, and they did a good job. 
Yeah, but one of the criticisms of Live Aid is, was it ever really of its time? It was bringing the 1970s rock dinosaurs back to life, I guess, and Whistle Test came from that same heritage. Yeah, very true. They did feature some of the indie acts of the 80s. So they had the Jesus and Mary Chain and the Smiths, for example, but it just wasn't really chiming with the times anymore. Janet Street Porter came in to the BBC and in 1987, she, as head of youth programmes, cancelled Whistle Test. Mm. The series ended with a live New Year's Eve special hosted by Bob Harris, which went through to the early hours of New Year's Day 1988 and you know showed what a vital piece of youth culture the show still was by featuring Bat Out of Hell by Meatloaf and <laughs> Hotel California by the Eagles. <laughs> yeah. Now, all that said, a show doesn't need to last forever. It doesn't need to capture every zeitgeist. Like we said with Ready, Steady, Go, did this show perfectly capture the zeitgeist of album-based prog rock and reggae and the other musical movements that were happening in the first half of the 70s? I would argue better than anything else on TV, it certainly did. Absolutely. And did it manage, ultimately, to come a little bit late to punk, but still to capture some great performances from some great artists? Yes, it absolutely did. Yes. I think if you were going to put it up against Top of the Pops, then you would say, come on, it just doesn't have that vitality and that excitement and that wide range of appeal. It's a bit beard strokey, it's a bit serious, it's a bit male, whereas Top of the Pops was immediate and exciting. But as it's not going up against Top of the Pops, I think it's worthy of consideration. Well, absolutely. I I think you sort of hit two really good zeitgeist eras there with the old grey whistle test. Yep. And it's certainly in with a chance. What's your next choice? Do you want the crazy Friday evening rule-breaking spirit of Ready, Steady, Go mixed with the live musicianship of the old Grey Whistle Test, but updated for a new decade? How can I resist? That sounds perfect. Of course it does. So let's talk about the tube. Oh, we're going to Newcastle. Why, I man? It was produced for Channel 4 by Tyne Tees Television, and they'd previously produced a similar music show called All Right Now and a music-oriented youth show called Check It Out for ITB. Okay. The Tube ran for five series from 1982 to 1987. Okay. And you remember who the two most famous presenters of The Tube were? Well, Jules Holland and Paulie Yates. Exactly. So this is Friday evening, just like Ready, Steady, Go was Friday evening. It's 5.30pm to 7pm. It's getting the weekend started. And the brief from Channel 4's head, Jeremy Isaacs, was make it live and give it balls. Wow. I'm sure that was a brief he often used when he moved on to the Royal Opera House. (laughs) The tube really did deliver on that brief. It was live and it had balls. It was anarchic, like truly anarchic. Mm. And that's something that we we say too often in the context of live TV, like anything could happen. But on this show, anything could happen. It wasn't even bothered about being professional. It was just wild, often to the point of being shambolic, occasionally to the point of being genius. Because in reality, live TV is pretty strictly controlled, right? It might have certain parameters where they can react and respond and do something spontaneous, but quickly it'll be dragged back into line. And crucially, there'll be a sort of editorial compliance level over it. Yeah, and it'll have been heavily rehearsed. There'll be a very strict running order. And then, as you say, there'll be someone sitting there making sure that everything complies. Yeah. In this case, the producers and directors didn't seem to care what the presenters did or what the bands did, as long as it was entertaining and authentic. Yeah. So, yeah, you mentioned Jules Holland and Paulie Yates, and although they are very different people and very different types of presenters, where Jules, you know, he's a serious muso in his own life. He's obviously a really good musician himself and really deeply cares about music from all eras and all genres. But also, around the time he was presenting The Tube, his attitude seemed to be, like, too cool for school. Like, 
I don't care about being on TV. It's not my proper job. And if you fire me, I don't care. Ironic, given what he'd then go on to do. Well, exactly. Paulie Yates's attitude was, you know, she was also cool. She was not starstruck. She was an anarchic, wild, free spirit, incredibly flirtatious, a very different personality from Jules. Yeah, a lot of her interviews were flirtatious. And obviously this is before the big bed on the big breakfast, but this is where I guess it started. And you probably couldn't do the sort of interviews that she did if you were starstruck. Exactly. Or if you really cared about ever working in TV again. And this is what Jules and Paula both had in common. They weren't professional or slick. They weren't even particularly polite. You know, they were just their authentic selves. And their authentic selves are quite strange. And it made for quite a strange TV show. (laughs) It's a classic that lots of people remember for all the right reasons. There are loads of moments that are classic TV that people remember. Uh, Rick Mail did an intro to one episode where he came out of a door and said, it's Friday, we're live and the pubs are open. And then he vomited into the camera. (laughs) And uh, one man in Northampton was so appalled that he called the police. (laughs) (laughs) Has anyone ever called the police after you vomited from drinking, John? They haven't called the police on me, but uh, when I was very young, I was sick in the street in Liverpool city centre. And I think a bit of it might have gone on a copper's shoes. (laughs) (laughs) That must have made you a hero locally. (laughs) The fact that The Tube was filmed in Newcastle, I think, was really important Mm. for a couple of reasons. First of all, Newcastle is a city with a party atmosphere anyway. Sure. So you're always going to get that. A Friday night in Newcastle is always going to generate a real atmosphere. Yeah. Also, all these bands and celebrities were travelling up together from London to be on The Tube. So they'd be on the same train together. They'd be staying in the same hotel together that night. And so there was a camaraderie had been built up and a sense of excitement about what was still to come that evening. And you could feel that coming through the TV screen. Also, it's just like the contestants on Deal or No Deal. (laughs) Yes. The presenters would take the acts out for a drink after the show. And uh, when Jules Holland took Miles Davis to the Rose and Crown pub in Newcastle, the landlord saw him with his trumpet and said, he's not playing that in here. (laughs) He could have had one of the greatest trumpeters playing in his pub. I know, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. The format of the show, so it's 90 minutes long. Wow. And the first 45 minutes of it were a magazine section that consisted of interviews, fashion items, comedy. So you'd have Frank Sidebottom, Alexi Sale, Vic Reeves, French and Saunders, all the heroes of alternative comedy. Mm. I mean, I guess it is mainly remembered as a music show. But yeah, when you point out it's got this 45-minute segment, it really emphasises that it was the proper youth show. It was Channel 4's first youth show. Absolutely. It was full on all about the entirety of youth culture. Yeah. Certainly some of those interviews would be with musicians. So you'd get Jules interviewing the musicians that he admired, which in Paula's words is anybody over 50 and anybody blind. (laughs) Okay. Paula interviewed the people that she fancied. And in at least one case would later date. Yep, and that was the vibe. It was, you know, serious music chat from Jules and real flirtation with pop stars by Paula. Yeah, yeah. And then once you'd got past that 45-minute section, then, yes, it would be the bit that it's most remembered for, which is 45 minutes of music. Usually here you'd get four or five bands, and it would close with one extended session from the main act. Sure. Now, I know that when we were talking about Ready, Steady, Go, I said, who cares whether the bands are playing live? Mm. But I 
reserve the right to be a hypocrite and say <laughs> one of the things that was great about the tube is that it was live music it's live in both senses right they're actually there playing on the stage and it's happening whilst it's being transmitted all the music itself is live it's not just the singing yeah exactly the whole lot of it is live and that's risky and yeah. you know you have to have some chops to be able to pull it off and make sure that you do a good job of that and i assume we'll talk about some of the resulting incidents Absolutely, yeah, we will. But it did lead to a great, exciting atmosphere. I think atmosphere is what the Tube is all about. Well, as Russ Abbott once said, I love a party with a friendly atmosphere. (laughs) He did, yeah, Joy Division cover. It was an important show. Lots of pop acts got their big break on the Tube. It was responsible for Frankie Goes to Hollywood, for example. Yeah. They used to have a segment on the Tube where they'd make a video for an unsigned, unknown act. And one week they chose Frankie Goes to Hollywood for it. And it was this performance that led to their record label, ZTT, spotting them, including its co-owner, Trevor Horn, who produced their great records. This was where Frankie were first spotted, appearing dressed in their leather bondage gear, singing Relax, which of course the BBC would ban and which would go to number one nevertheless. Mike Reed single-handedly banning it on behalf of the corporation. Exactly. But doesn't this just show the difference between Channel 4 and BBC at the time? that Mike Reed was banning it, whereas Channel 4 was uncovering it in the first place. And you would never have seen gay culture as explicit as that on British TV up until that point. It's brilliant. And the the idea of just making a video for an unsigned act, what a brilliant idea that is as well. Yeah, it's great. It's it's great television. And, you know, in the case of Frankie, it goes on to uncover one of the biggest bands of the decade. Yeah. And it does show how much more risk-taking Channel 4 was when compared to the BBC, how much more youth-orientated Channel 4 was, and how it was really delivering on its remit by being progressive and subversive yeah you can't imagine that when thatcher created channel 4 she was expecting that frankie would be there in their leather bondage gear exactly it was the most amazingly counterproductive move from the conservative government but you know worked out brilliantly for us as viewers fantastic i mean let's face it channel 4 in its first 20 years or so was the best tv channel the uk's ever had yeah yeah just so innovative yeah and so important and obviously that as we often say competition drives other broadcasters as well so of course the bbc and itv responded to, to that and made great programs of their own but it was channel 4 really pushing the envelope definitely so there were some really notable performances on the Tube. U2 had done a live video of themselves performing at Red Rocks, and the Tube showed clips from that all the time, which Bono credits for making U2 into the biggest band in the world. Right, and I'm meant to see that as a positive. <laughs> well, it's all matter of taste, I suppose. They had famous performances from Robert Plant, Tina Turner, Bo Diddley, ZZ Top, Elton John, David Bowie. Paul Young's first TV appearance, Madonna, when the show came live from the Hacienda in Manchester. And this was such early Madonna that Warner Brothers didn't consider her a priority act and wouldn't pay for her train fare to go up. (laughs) Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, Tyne Tees had to pay. There was a concern when the Tube launched that big acts and celebrities might not bother to go up to Newcastle on a Friday night. Mm. But they got everybody. Everybody they wanted appeared on that show. And I guess some of that is because of the atmosphere they created. If it hadn't been this great environment, everybody could just freely play, do the music they wanted to do, relax afterwards, enjoy the green room in the pub next door, they probably wouldn't have got the acts in the first place. Probably right, yeah. And then the fact that the acts were there meant that the show was creating the zeitgeist, which in turn meant everybody else wanted to be on there. just self-propelled. Snowballs, yeah. Yeah. 
it was during the 50th episode of The Tube in November 1984 that Bob Geldof, who of course was Paul Yates' husband, ran into Major and suggested that they get together to write and produce a fundraising single for the Christmas market to help the Ethiopian famine. Oh, okay. I mean, obviously it's a brilliant charity act, but it's such an overplayed song. Yeah, I mean, I like to hear it twice a year, once early in the Christmas period and then again on Christmas Day, but you definitely get it a lot more than that. Yeah. The Jam performed on the very first edition of the show in 1982, and it was their last live TV appearance together before they split up at the end of the year. Do you think that the show was responsible for them splitting? Probably Weller was already on his way out by then, and he was becoming more uh, expansive in the type of music that he wanted to do. Mm. But when The Jam appeared, they really showed that they were an excellent live band, like they were just shit hot. Yeah. One of my favourite bands, Half Man, Half Biscuit, yeah, were invited band. to appear on the tube and they turned down the chance because they said Tranmere Overs are playing that <laughs> night. <laughs> Even though Channel 4 offered to fly them by helicopter to the game. Well, Madonna had to take the train and Half Man, Half Biscuit <laughs> were off the helicopter and they still said no. Different times, different times. Yeah. The Redskins, uh, in a very famous performance on the tube, brought on a striking minor. Mm. And they hadn't told the producers that a striking minor was going to appear on the stage with them. So they're doing the song in the middle of it. The singer says, here's a striking minor from Durham who's going to tell you what's going on with the government. And this guy walks up to the microphone. The Redskins haven't told the producers about it because they want this guy to have uninterrupted, unedited ability to talk to the nation about what's happening in the miners' strike. And he delivers a diatribe against the Thatcher government, but his mic is down, yes. so we can't hear a single word that he says. And a lot of people think there's a big conspiracy theory here that somehow Channel 4 were deliberately keeping the mic down. I mean, quite apart from the fact the show is made by Tyne Tees. I definitely go for cock up rather than conspiracy on this one. As soon as the song finished, Jules said, we didn't know that was happening and that's why the fader wasn't pushed up on his microphone. And that's the line that everybody involved has stuck to ever since. I have to say the miner did talk for quite a long time, so I find it difficult to believe that nobody in the gallery could have pushed the fader up if they wanted to. Yeah, that's fair. Although I do think if there's a broadcasting conspiracy from the miners' strike, it has to be the BBC's coverage of Orgreave. Oh, 100%. I mean, that's something we should talk about at some point. That, that's one of the biggest scandals moments. in the BBC's yeah, history. Absolutely agree. They did a number of special events on the Tube. Most notably, they did a Midsummer Night's Tube in 1984, which was a five-hour version of the show, which wow. was broadcast live from multiple locations, from the studio in Tyne Seas, from the pub across the road from the studios, and from the Hopping's Annual Fair in Newcastle. At the time, this was the longest continuous live music show in television history. I mean, five hours today would be a lot, yeah. but five hours in 1984, that's just incredible, isn't it? And they pulled it off both editorially and technically, which is actually extremely rare on events of that time. You know, yeah. usually they are pretty calamitous. Something usually goes wrong. Yeah. And then on 16th of January 1987, one of the biggest moments in the history of the Tube was during the fifth series. There was a live trailer for the show on ITV during mm. peak children's viewing time, 5.15pm, yes. just after Noddy. Just after Noddy. Yeah, when Jules Holland said... Be there or be ungroovy fuckers. Mm. The show was taken off air for three weeks as a result of that. Wow. And Jules was suspended for a, a further week afterwards. The very first response from Tyne Tees was to deny that he'd said it really? because it was live TV and, you know, nobody had a hard drive, right? So they didn't expect people just to be able to skip back and hear what had been said. Right. But a viewer had recorded it on VHS. Oh, dear. And caught them out and said he did say. And grasped him up. Fuckers. 
Jules Holland had form for having sworn on the live show itself, so he was seriously reprimanded by Channel 4. Yeah. Quite soon after that, the show's producer, Malcolm Gary, and Tyne's director of programmes, Andrea Onefour, both announced their resignations. If you remember, we talked about Andrea Onefour in our Kids Drama episode. Because she went on to co-create Biker Grove and commissioned The Big Breakfast and The Word. Yes, Andrea is one of the most important people in, in the sort of TV that we like. Absolutely. They both quit. This is a couple of months after the Jules Holland scandal. And they cited a mixture of internal bickering, political pressure and stifling bureaucracy and heavy-handed moralism. That's quite a charge, isn't it? Yeah. And do you think all of that came from ungroovy fuckers? I think so. I think that was the catalyst for it. No further series of the tube were commissioned, and nobody said this is because Jules Holland said ungroovy fuckers, but I think that was the reason why the show died. It was fine to be anarchic until you swore. Yes. There were loads of examples of guests dropping the F-bomb in the live show as well. Mm. It was live TV. They were pop stars, actors. They'd had a few beers. You know, Jimmy Nail was on and said fuck at one point as well. Like, it was just part of what happened on this show. And ultimately, I think Channel 4 lost the stomach for it. And if Jimmy Nail was on singing, then we all said fuck. (laughs) Fuck off. For the final episode of the final series, you two wrote and recorded a special song. Oh, shall we listen to it? Nope, because it's terrible. Oh, okay. Tyne Tees then made another music show called The Roxy, this Mm. time for ITV. The Roxy was based on the network chart that was used by independent local radio. Oh yeah, the crap chart. Yeah, it was a bit more of a top of the pops sort of a format, I suppose, because there was a rundown. Yeah. The Roxy was hosted by David Kid Jensen and Kevin Sharkey, but it only lasted for 10 months. It wasn't a success. Okay. The Tube then did make a comeback of sorts in 1999 on Sky One. Do you remember this? Vaguely, yes. This is before I had Sky, so I didn't actually see it but i did hear about it yeah i don't remember watching it either and i was living in newcastle at the time so i must have gone out of my way to avoid it (laughs) it was called the apocalypse tube and it copied the format of the tube using the same location but the presenters were chris moyles and donna okay i suspect the least said about that the better yeah and obviously it was a one-off sky must have thought the same Yes. In 2006, do you remember when Channel 4 were bidding for digital radio multiplexes? I do. It's, it's funny to remember that now, but they were bidding for the second national dab mux. No one ever talks about it anymore, no. but the tube was part of the format that they were pitching in, in that bid. Channel 4 won the bid, but they handed back the licence, and now it's just a footnote in broadcasting history. Yeah, what could have been? So that's the tube. Now, obviously... Top of the Pops meant a lot to two or three generations, whereas the Tube was only really important to Generation X. But I think it would be a great commission for cracking TV. Now, let's be honest, if you commissioned it, you would be taking a big risk. No one would say ungroovy fuckers on Top of the Pops. Very true. But you do like risky TV. I do like risky TV. I like a good live show where anything can happen. And the Tube is a very strong contender. Okay. But what's your final pitch? My final pitch is the chart show. Oh, okay. Music TV in the mid to late 80s was changing forever thanks to America's innovation, MTV. Absolutely. We didn't really have MTV here unless if you had cable TV, some people did. Maybe they were getting MTV Europe. But back in the 80s, no one had seen MTV in this country. No. And the chart show was British TV's response, really. It was was this sense of, okay, this is what music TV is going to look like from now on. Right, yes. It originally ran on Channel 4 from 1986 up to 1989. It was 45 minutes long on a Friday evening. Mainly it was filling gaps in between series of the tube. Right. And what was unique 
unique about the chart show and thoroughly surprising at the time is that it didn't have any presenters. It didn't have any live music performances. It was just music videos and the computer generated displays. They had some quite advanced graphics for the time. Yeah, it was all built on Amigas, but it was very cutting edge yeah. and it would link the different videos together or it would bring up some text overlaid on the video to give you some information about the band or the song. Yes. It was extremely radical, cutting edge, very zeitgeisty, very 1980s slash 1990s. Mm. These graphics would mimic a video recorder in operation. So they'd go down the chart and it would play you a few seconds of a video from a chart hit of the time and then it would fast forward onto the next one. Yeah. But sometimes, and you were always hoping that this was going to happen on a song that you liked, a big play symbol would appear and then we'd get to see most of that video. Funny, isn't it? Because it's such a simple little idea. But as a viewer, you really were invested hoping that that play button would get pressed. In the age of linear TV, you could do surprising and interesting and exciting things that are not possible nowadays. Absolutely. You had to be watching it and going, oh, please play that video. Because if you don't, I'm not going to see it anywhere else. And then it skips past a video that you like and you're like, oh man. Bollocks. And then Jason Donovan's song comes on and it hits play and you're like, shit, no. No. It was a very, very different television experience than anything we were used to. Definitely. Shortly after it launched on Channel 4, it was taken off air because of a dispute with the Musicians Union, because, of course, they were complaining about music videos being shown on ITV and Channel 4 and live musicians not getting an opportunity to perform. Now, this was something that Top of the Pops had been through, blacked out more than once by Musicians Union strikes. The Musicians Union pop up throughout the 70s, 80s and 90s as the music industry is changing and music television is changing and it's affecting their livelihoods. So that dispute lasted throughout the summer of 1986. But then the chart show came back and by the beginning of 1989, it was so popular that the production team moved it from Channel 4 onto the ITV network. (laughs) Sellouts. <laughs> so its ITV transmission run was between 1989 and 1998, usually on a Saturday morning at 11.30. Yeah. And then sometimes repeated late at night in the ITV regions. It was an hour long now that it had gone to ITV. Oh, how did they use the extra time? Well, they had so many videos that they needed to show because this was one of the only places on British TV where a pop music video would be shown. You might get one or two in an episode of Top of the Pops. And that would typically be because the artists hadn't turned up to the studio. It's not that they wanted necessarily to play the videos. Sometimes if it was, you know, a really famous video like Michael Jackson's Thriller Thriller, or Hello by Lionel Richie, then I'm sure the BBC were very excited to be airing it. But yes, generally the preference for Top of the Pops was that it was a studio-based show. And of course, the chart show was the exact opposite of that. They're showing these videos, and if you were an act with a big American profile, then no doubt you were spending lots of money on your video for it to go onto MTV. Mm. But if you were a purely British act, then probably you were making the video primarily with the chart show in mind, because there was really nowhere else it was going to be shown. Yeah. One of the things that was really important about the chart show was it had specialist charts. Yeah. The main format of the show was the, the top 40. Yes, and like the Roxy, it's the wrong chart. It's not the official chart. Yeah, they used a different chart from the BBC. So at first the chart show was using the chart compiled by MRIB, which was used by commercial radio. Mm. And then later on the chart show was actually compiling its own chart. But there were many occasions when, because it was using this different methodology, and also because this chart was coming out on a Saturday, whereas the BBC's chart was coming out on a Sunday, then quite often the song that was at number one on the chart show was different from the official number one, which would really mess with your head. Yeah. And I agree, it is the wrong chart. The official chart is always the BBC chart. 
Exactly. But then as you say, the specialist chart, I think this was a really important aspect of the chart show. So my disapproval for using the wrong main chart is tempered by the specialist chart. Yeah. So they'd have these specialist charts, they'd be on rotation. So you'd have to wait several weeks until your favourite chart came around. But they'd have indie, dance, heavy metal, reggae. Mm. I used to really look forward to the indie chart coming on, you know, once a month. Yeah. But if you were a heavy metal fan, you know, this ITV Saturday morning show, which otherwise you might think is cheesy, would actually be really, really important to you because it's the only place you were going to see the videos from the current heavy metal singles. Absolutely. And was the specialist chart of the week or was it over the month? I think it was of the week. So you were getting a snapshot. Snapshot, yeah. Yeah, I used to look forward to it. And I remember very well 1993 watching the chart show and it clicking the big play button and Suede were doing the Drowners, which was the first time I'd seen or heard them. Right. You know, they went on to become my favourite band for several years before I fell in love with Dexys. And this was the moment, I think everybody really agrees, that Britpop was born for good and ill. There was a British band doing this accessible, catchy indie music with a very British aesthetic. And it was following years of the ascendancy and dominance of grunge music. Mm. And there were loads of teenagers like me who were looking for a music that we could consider our own. And this was what we got. And then Blur and Pulp and Oasis and and everybody exploded and and Britpop happened. But I think this particular moment, this particular Saturday morning on the chart show was where all of that started. All started on the chart show. Wow. Particularly like indie bands who were signed to indie labels and didn't have very much money. They often didn't have a music video that could be played. Mm. And sometimes they'd have to have a video specially produced for them to appear on the chart show. Sometimes the chart show would have to play a song without a video. So in the early years, they'd just show a photo of the artist and an excerpt from the song. But as the show progressed, they would put in computer generated sequences to accompany the audio clips. Usually then you wouldn't get your song played in full if you didn't have a proper video to go with it. But, you know, as they're going through the chart and they're playing a little snippet, they'd sort of show a game of Pong or a close-up of a turntable playing or a car being crushed or silhouettes of people dancing or a lava lamp or just, you know, sort of stock footage. Yes, just so that they could show that snippet and move on. Yeah. One of the features that I always really enjoyed on the chart show, partly because pop music in the late 80s, I mean, it had some great stuff, but there was also, there was a bit of fatigue around. Pop music went through a little bit of a stale phase and I always enjoyed the video vault. Yeah, I did. Which was when they would show a video from, you know, an old song like Hit Me With Your Rhythm Stick or Hanging On The Telephone, something like that. It was always like interesting. The songs were not from the absolutely ancient past, but, you know, they could be eight or nine or ten years old, which felt like ages when you were in your early teens. Well, it did. Yes, it did feel like a different era. Yeah. But it just sort of mixed it up a bit, didn't it? Yeah, it would be interesting and exciting and and it would look different. It would sound different. Well, and, and of course, they had the graphic where they opened up the vault. Yeah. And again, this does seem so stupid in the modern context when we have all this music on demand. But back then we didn't and it was exciting. What is going to be dug out this week? The visuals are going into this vault and opening the safe and bringing something out. And what is this special treasure? Yes, you're right. It seems absurd now, but I used to find it genuinely thrilling. Simpler times. 
Yes. Uh, partly because we were younger, of course, mm. but also partly because we were less jaded. And, <laughs> you know, YouTube didn't exist and yeah. you couldn't just go and watch the videos hanging on the telephone. Like if it wasn't going to come on the chart show, you were never going to see it in your life. No, exactly. You could go years between seeing these videos, literally. Yeah. In 1997, The Verve released their single, Lucky Man, and they refused to allow the chart show to show the video. Bit weird. Yeah. When, when the song was mentioned in the top 10 and in the indie charts, one of these pop-up graphics for the chart show appeared, and it said, The Verve refused to let the video appear on the show unless the show was redesigned. Well, they didn't like the graphics. Yeah, for some reason, they wanted the format of the show to be changed if they were going to deign to have their video shown on it. Oh, right. In the indie chart of the sixth of December 1997, the graphic that appeared in place of The Verve's Lucky Man said, Okay, everybody, no change from last week. The band and their manager, Jazz, are still refusing to let us show the video unless we redesign the show for them. Mm. In the words of Vanilla, <laughs> no way, no way, Manamana. <laughs> so they've gone from one of the greatest bands to one of the most cheesy, appalling pop songs ever released. You know, the Verve were taking themselves far too seriously yeah. and then the, the chart show were not going to play along with it. No, good for the chart show. The very last edition of the chart show was shown on the 22nd of August, 1998. It had been axed in favour of a live performance-based pop show, CD UK, which began the following week. Yes. The chart show name has returned to UK television a couple of times. Channel 4 brought it back from the 6th to the 12th of January 2003, so a very short-lived revival. Yeah. And then there was a channel called Chart Show TV, yeah, which revived the chart show programme from 2008 to 2009. So yeah, that's the chart show. I mean, yes, in the era of YouTube, maybe pop videos on TV aren't as exciting as they were. So if you don't commission this, then I understand. But we have to consider it in the context of its day. It was very groundbreaking and very important. That's fair enough. I mean, who knows where the commission will go. But I definitely agree that in its day, it was a, an important groundbreaking show. So before I tell you what I've already got in mind, what shows didn't quite make it? Well, Top of the Pops, obviously, because as I said at the top of the show, there's no point pitching that. It's too huge and would win the commission too easily. Okay. I did consider Jukebox Jury. That mm. ran from 1959 to 1967. It was hosted by David Jacobs, and each week he would ask four celebrities to judge newly released records and forecast which would be declared a hit and which would be a miss. Okay, yeah. An interesting point in the format was one of the artists would be hidden backstage and would come out and surprise the panel, which could be very awkward if they declared that record to be a miss. Yes. One episode in 1963, they had the Beatles as the panel and they got 23 million viewers. Wow. Which was almost half the UK population at the time. That's insane. It was briefly revived in 1979 with Noel Edmonds as the host and again in 1989 and 1990 with Jules Holland. Oh, I do remember the Jules Holland revival. Speaking of Jules Holland, yes. another show that I considered but didn't quite make it is Later with Jules Holland. Mm. I was very nice about Jules Holland earlier when we were talking about The Tube. Yeah. But I've got to be honest with you, I'm not a big fan of Jules. Really? My nickname for Jules is the Boogie Woogie Bellin boy from BBC Two. <laughs> okay. It was going so well when you said Boogie Woogie and then you just said Bellend. Who wants to listen to the Ace of Spades by Motorhead being embellished by... <laughs> <laughs> 
When The Fall appeared on Later with Jules, they apparently had it contractually agreed that Jules would not try to play along with them. Really? And I know this is controversial. I know that this is a television institution and lots of people love it and everyone's entitled to their own opinion. But I find Later with Jules Holland to be so slick and museo-y. Like the old grey whistle test, but scrubbed and polished until that's all that's left is a smooth, shiny, sexless object, like something that would appear on a posh person's coffee table. It's funny, I've been in the uh, Later With Jules audience, and this is before they went live, but they did it as live, and yes, it was really, really slick. Jules's interviews, they obviously let run long and they edit it down. But otherwise, it's exactly the show that I saw in the studio. So it was no wonder that they were then able to take it live a year or two later. Unlike the tube, there was no danger of anything going slightly awry. There was no anarchy to it whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, as the esteemed television professionals that we are, we have to appreciate the technical efficiency. From the skills of the crew, I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, in terms of the atmosphere that it generates for me as a viewer, I'm just not into it. For me, the archetypal Later with Jules performance would be the Buena Vista Social Club featuring Noel Gallagher covering a song by Seastick Steve while the blokes from Cold Feet nod their approval. (laughs) Do you want to hear the show that I've already got in mind? I'm very excited, yeah. Yes, it's number one. It's Top of the Pops. What? I'm thinking of putting Top of the Pops on cracking TV. You can't do Top of the Pops. Why not? Because I've said the whole reason that we're not doing Top of the Pops is because it's obviously just going to win and it's going to ruin the format of this podcast. So we're trying to make a good entertaining show, not just to get a cheap win. And then you've gone fucking Top of the Pops. Aren't we trying to find the best music show that has ever been on British television? The answer to that is Top of the Pops. So what's the point in doing a podcast about it? We're trying to find the best show. The answer is Top of the Pops. So that's why I'm talking about Top of the Pops. You arsehole. Right, I know what's happened here. Because last time around, you screwed me over to the tune of a quarter of a million pounds. <laughs> not. And I, therefore, didn't give you the commission for afternoon game shows. You've decided to get your revenge by coming here and sabotaging my pitches by bringing Top of the Pops, which is obviously going to win and has made my effort completely wasted. You're just upset that you didn't think to put Top of the Pops as one of your shows. Of course I thought to put... Oh, like I'm going, what music shows shall I pitch to get the commission? Uh, not going to consider Top of the Pops. I considered it, but decided not to do it. Well, that's not my problem, is it? All right. That's your, that's your own mistake. Technically, you are valid. Thank you. And so, go on. Let's hear about Top of the Pops. Top of the Pops was commissioned by Bill Cotton for an initial six-week run. Right, okay. Outlisted that somewhat. Yes, and he said... Ready Steady Go was doing amazing things. A chart show seemed simple and right, but there were, to say the least, trepidations within the BBC as to the potential of a show such as Top of the Pops. The feeling was either it would be a total failure or a completely overwhelming success. Interesting. So which of those do you think that it was? Well, I mean, certainly it was a huge success. Was it overwhelmed? Was, was he worried that it, Top of the Pops was going to become like too big for the BBC? Well, who knows? But it ran from 1964 until 2006 in its original format. I mean, it's a hell of a run. And what what that picks up in terms of pop history is incredible. They have everything on there. It's a shame that so many of the 60s videos have been lost forever because what an archive the decades of Top of the Pops that we do still have represent. Well, absolutely. And it sort of started just as the UK acts had really taken over the charts. I think 1963, every number one, apart from when it was Elvis, was a UK act. 
let's be fair, Ready Steady Go had really tapped into the zeitgeist as we were talking about earlier. Yeah. But Top of the Pops comes along, first show, 1st of January 1964. And yes, it is just tapping into this incredible range of UK music that was around in the 60s. And then it kept reinventing itself. Perhaps sometimes the reinvention was a little bit slow to happen, but essentially it tracked pop music for 40 years. There's two things that change. One is the format of the show and the other is the music that it features. Mm. And I think you probably could argue that the format of the show always lagged a little bit behind general youth trends. Yes. They would take a bit of time to catch up because they were BBC Light Entertainment producers, weren't they, making this pop show? They weren't tapped into the zeitgeist maybe like the producers of Ready, Steady, Go were. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. But from the perspective of the music, then, of course, Top of the Pops reflects the charts. What we think of as the dominant youth cultures of, of any particular era only really start to be heavily represented in the charts a year or two later. It takes a while. It always takes yeah. a while for these things to filter through. Yeah. Now, they set up some rules for that first episode, and they basically lasted the whole of the run. Changed a little bit, but the show was based originally on the top 20, yeah. later the top 30, then the top 40. The show would always end with the number one single. Yeah. Only songs moving up the charts could be featured. Yeah, that's a really uh, important and interesting rule, isn't it? Yeah. If it hadn't gone up in the previous week, then it wasn't allowed to be on. And songs couldn't be played two weeks in a row unless it was the number one song. Right. The first song featured was I Only Want To Be With You by Dusty Springfield. Hero of Ready, Steady, Go. Exactly. And the first band to perform was the Rolling Stones with I Want to Be Your Man. Which, of course, was written by Lennon and McCartney. So you've got quite the British lineup there with Dusty Springfield, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. Now, interestingly, the Stones immediately broke the only climbers rule as it was number 14 this particular week. And it was 13 the week before. <laughs> That's fascinating because I was going to say, like, they often did bend these supposed rules, but they didn't even make it past the second song without bending the no. rules. And when the show launched, the chart was released on a Tuesday. And so with the show airing live on a Thursday, that only left them two days to finalise the running order. And if a band had been booked and they'd fallen down the charts, then the Rolling Stones example in show one aside, that band would be unceremoniously dumped. That's incredible. Now, do you want to know what was Top of the Pops on the first show? Yes, of course I do. Well, I'm actually going to start at number 12, especially for you. Not Jason Donovan, <laughs> but Jerry and the Pacemakers with You'll Never Walk Alone. Right, yeah, anthem of Liverpool Football Club. They did get to number one, but it was in November 63, so two months before Top of the Pops launched. Right. And then at 11, it was The Shadows with Geronimo. The top 10 itself, at 10, Maria Elena with Los Indios Tapajaras. I don't even know that song. No, nor do I. Number nine, a non-mover, Gene Pitney with 24 Hours from Tulsa. Okay, yeah. Up two to number eight, Cliff Richard with Don't Talk to Him. Good advice. Yeah, don't talk to him if it's raining at Wimbledon. <laughs> and then at seven, up one, Dominique with Singing Nun. Right. Glad all over. It's the Dave Clark Five at six. But actually, they were down two, so maybe they weren't that glad. Although they would later reach number one. And Dave Clark went on to buy the broadcast rights to Ready, Steady, Go. Yeah, and so everything is interconnected. And talking of Ready, Steady, Go, here's Dusty Springfield. She was in at five. Yep. At four, Kathy Kirkby with Secret Love. That is very interesting because that feels less zeitgeisty. That feels like a, a late 50s, early 60s hangover still in the charts as opposed to the like exciting British beat combo music that was dominating the rest. And it just shows you the hit parade covers a wide range of music. Yeah. At three, and it was their third week at three, Freddie and the Dreamers, You Were Made For Me. Yeah. At two, a little band, I don't know if you've heard of them, uh, the Beatles. <laughs> yes. 
she loves you. Mm-hmm. And I know what's at number one because it, it was the Christmas number one from uh, the week before. Who do you think had beaten the Beatles to number one? That was also the Beatles, wasn't it, with I Want to Hold Your Hand? It is indeed. It was their third week at number one. Amazing. What's your favourite Beatles album? I'd have to say The Best of the Beatles. Oh, yeah. That's a good choice. One interesting thing about the format is that they deliberately played the original recording of the single. It wasn't just a sort of a practicality thing of what could they do in the studio. They claimed that you wanted to hear the, the song as originally made that was the best version of it. Right. They emphasised this by having a disc girl, a so-called disc girl, first Denise Sammy and then Samantha Just, and they played the records which the artist mimed to. Right. So that's interesting. So so it was emphatically saying what you're hearing is the single. What you're hearing is the thing that you bought or are going to go out and buy. Exactly. And the show originally came from the BBC's Dickinson Road Studios in Manchester. Famously, it was a converted church. Yes. And then Top of the Pops moved to London in 1966, initially from Lime Grove and then Television Centre. And to be fair, that probably did help you to get the pop stars of the day into the studio at short notice, which was required. But I also think it's a shame because imagine an alternative universe where it had done 40 or 50 years from a converted church in Manchester. It would have been incredibly iconic. It would, yes. And and that converted church has since been demolished and it's now a housing estate. We can't not mention this. The first show was hosted by Jimmy Savile. And of course, we all know the terrible things now. And unfortunately, his name is going to be forever associated with that show. It has to be faced up to that. Not only did he host the first episode, he also hosted the final episode and he hosted many episodes in between for decades. I mean, he was still one of the main rotation presenters well into the late 70s. Yeah. I think it's fine to acknowledge that there were some very bad people involved with the show and not just Sabal, but you can also acknowledge that really exciting, interesting, important things happened and that this was a fantastic show, which is very worthy of discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Now, perhaps we could pick out some of the interesting moments that have happened down the years. Yeah. Do you remember the time that Dexies were on with Jackie Wilson Says? <laughs> of course I do. I mean, as I've mentioned on this podcast more than once, Dexies Midnight Runners are my favourite band. Yeah, you keep that quiet. <laughs> and one of the greatest moments in that band's history and in Top of the Pops history and, in my opinion, British television history was Dexies Midnight Runners appearing on Top of the Pops, singing a cover version of Van Morrison's Jackie Wilson Says and performing in front of a huge photograph of the darts player Jockey Wilson with no explanation no winking at the camera and you know then this urban myth went around that somebody in the top of the pops production team had misunderstood what the song was about and had accidentally put up the wrong image (laughs) that's obviously not true it was a subversive joke by kevin Rowland, right but it was absolutely superb and things like that again you have to put them in the context of the time everybody watched top of the pops a joke like that a massive piss take like that is only funny if you are subverting a huge family watched massively cultural important TV show if you basically know what you're doing in the medium of music television and you do that it's absolute genius absolutely do you know what happened when Rod Stewart and the Faces were on performing Maggie May is that when they had John Peel miming the mandolin (laughs) it is yes subverting the artist's miming trope (laughs) 
although you said that they played the original studio recording of songs, I think at some point that moved, didn't it? Thanks to Musicians Union stuff, to the band had to do a special session recording for Top of the Pops, and if the band couldn't or wouldn't do that, then the Top of the Pops orchestra would do their version of it. Yeah, that's right. And they did employ the Top of the Pops orchestra. And sometimes these old BBC pro musicians would struggle with certain genres like reggae. Yes, I think that's fair to say. And the arrangement didn't last forever. And the rules about miming changed over the years. Yeah, and I think there's a lot to be said for that. I know I've gone back and forth in this episode about the benefits or otherwise of playing live on these music TV shows. But when you get very visual pop stars of the 80s for whom choreography, for example, is a big part of the performance, then, yes. you know, miming is fine. As long as what they're doing is something interesting and exciting to watch, then they don't care about whether they're proving their chops as a musician or not. Totally agree. But an example of when miming backfired, in 1991, Nirvana wanted to play Smells Like Teen Spirit, totally live, against the better judgement of the producers. A compromise was reached where Kurt Cobain would sing to a backing track. Yes. Except he sang in a deliberately low voice in protest. (laughs) And wasn't there a time when Oasis were on and Liam and Noel swapped roles with each other? Yeah, when they performed Roll With It. Right. And even on Don't Leave Me This Way, you know, the communards, very different singing styles between Jimmy Somerville and Sarah J. Morris. They swapped lyrics a part of the song towards the end. Nice. It was good that you had these bands who would subvert the rules. There were so many moments on Top of the Pops that really were subversive, weren't there? For, you know, Thursday tea time when you were watching with your dad, there was plenty of things that pop stars did deliberately to raise the hair of older people who were watching and to really excite younger people who were watching. Yeah, absolutely. But when you bring up the dads watching, surely that's a segue into the dance troops of which Pan's People is the most famous. That bit was for the dads, wasn't it? Female dancers wearing short skirts. Yes. The dance troops came about because, of course, they couldn't always book the artist to appear on the show, so they'd still play the single. But then the dancers would come on and, and perform to the single. And the first dance troupe, you know what they were called? Pre-Pan's People? No, I don't. The Gojos. Okay. And then after Pan's People? Was it Ruby Slipper before Legs and Co? Oh, so close. It was Ruby Flipper. Oh. Uh. Ruby Slippers are what you wear at home, <laughs> But then, yeah, Legs and Co. There was a final group called Zoo. Yeah, they're terrible. But then into the 80s, when Michael Hurl came along and sort of relaunched Top of the Pops, turned it into the party atmosphere, they employed cheerleaders to lead the dancing but the idea was the audience would dance right yeah that's top of the pops really i think absolutely iconic show the longest running music show in television absolutely look it was a great tv show david bowie doing starman and pretending to fillet his guitarist (laughs) Mark Ullman staring down the lens of the camera with his big black eye makeup doing Tainted Love and hundreds of other moments that just made people go, what the hell did I just see? Like nothing like that has ever been on British TV before. Moments like that happened very frequently on Top of the Pops. Mm. For most of us, this was where we first saw most of the pop stars that we either liked or hated. It was a hugely important place to discover music, for artists to break out into mega stardom. It ran forever. It went through British early 60s pop music, psychedelic music, glam rock, punk, electronica, new pop, 
new romantics, late 80s post-Live Aid bullshit into the 90s and dance music, hip-hop, which it got onto a bit late, but nonetheless did get onto. I mean, there's this magnificent archive of these performers standing in a BBC TV studio and making a unique performance just for British TV that we're really, really lucky that it happened and it's much mourned. It's easy to look back and say, look, it was wrong to axe Top of the Pops in 2006. And obviously to look back with rose-tinted spectacles over the 40 years of the show. But I do think it was wrong to get rid of it. The music styles changed, but there is always going to be music that is popular. I mean, that's the definition of what Top of the Pop should be covering. Yeah, the show could have kept on evolving. I think probably what mattered more than changes in music styles was changes in the importance of the chart. That's fair, yes. Because music consumption and distribution Change. methods changed. When it's no longer about buying physical singles, the charts, they change very quickly and songs from ages ago can be really high up in the charts. They're no longer really a, an accurate reflection of what's happening in the culture, I guess. The charts were clearly far too slow to respond to streaming. Yeah. You know, we talked about the rules of Top of the Pops, that songs that went down the charts weren't allowed to appear. You definitely had that thing, and we had this growing up, and it lasted, I think, into the 90s, where you would track a song as it rose up the charts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, you'd support it almost yeah. like a sport, right? This is, yes. this is what young people now will never understand what the charts used to be, because it's so weird. Right, why do you give a shit about some record industry metrics about who is making more money for their label? Like, why was that important to us? I don't know, but it really was. So, yeah, the song that was at number one was, like, the football team that was top of the league like mm. you, you knew it and you cared about it you wanted your favorite acts to be doing well yeah that aspect of the songs changing and i don't know how much of that would still work and obviously the chart is a significant part of the top of the pops format yeah but the idea of there still being new music constantly released and yeah. having a mainstream audience on bbc one and of course it's not just about the linear channel anymore yeah but a mainstream show on the front page of iplayer i think is still a legitimate thing that the bbc should be doing so do i and there have been huge megastars it's not like yeah. the world has lacked pop stars like no. katy perry mm. and adele and one direction and ed sheeran and bruno mars like there's loads of people that teenagers would have enjoyed watching on tv and the whole family might have been interested in and yeah sure we're the age that our dads were now and so it would be our job to tut and say it's not as good as it used to be yeah. but that's all part of the fun yeah and i think it's interesting when they got rid of top of the pops one of the reasons cited is that there are now music channels and people watch those but that was incredibly short-sighted yeah where are music channels now why would you sit down and watch a linear tv channel to watch a music video when you can just go to youtube yeah and i think andy peters had the right idea when he took over producing and it's a shame he ran out of road but you try and create special moments because nowadays you could put the individual three-minute performance on youtube and that performance generates excitement Absolutely, or even part of it onto TikTok. Yes. The BBC tried a revival of sorts a few years ago with sounds like Friday Nights, but for whatever reason, that didn't work. And now there are no mainstream pop shows on TV. I think we both agree that Top of the Pop should come back. <sighs> well, unfortunately, I'm duty-bound by the format of this podcast to not agree with you and say that it should be Ready, Steady, Go, Old Grey Whistle Test, The Tube or The Chart Show. Well, we'll find out in a minute which show I'm going to commission. But first, I've got a little quiz for you to see if you could produce a music show. Music 
Ready Steady Go presenter Keith Fordyce commentated on the UK's first colour broadcast in 1967 on BBC Two. What was the event? Eurovision Song Contest. Wasn't that a repeat from the day before when it had been in black and white? No. Damn you! So that was 1968 that the Eurovision Song Contest was repeated the next day. Right. Wimbledon. Oh, yes, okay. The host of Jazz Club on The Fast Show was inspired (laughs) by Whispering Bob Harris, as we've mentioned. But what's the name of the host of Jazz Club? Oh, God. Um, Louis Balfour? My goodness, you got it right. I'm really impressed. Question about the tube. The pub next door to Time Tea Studios became the unofficial green room of the tube. You've mentioned one pub already, but it's not the one I'm thinking of. Okay. What's the pub next door to the studios? I've probably drunk in there in my time, but I don't know. The Egypt Cottage. Okay. Finally, a montage of old chart show graphics was shown on one of the last episodes to accompany which song that had reached number one, but which did not yet have a video. So we're talking about 1998. That's right, yes. And apparently loads of people had written in saying we want to see some old chart show graphics and they sort of put the two things together and gave people their wish. I suspect it wasn't chocolate salty balls. <laughs> it wasn't chocolate salty balls. Um, chef, no. Was it Roller Coaster by Bewitched? Oh, no, it was Music Sounds Better With You by Stardust. Oh, that checks out. Yes. So you've got one out of four. Oh, that's not good, is it? It's not good at all. I'm not sure you've demonstrated that you can produce a music show. Let's go to the decision and see what happens. Okay. So you've pitched me Ready, Steady, Go. Yeah. The Old Grey Whistle Test. Yep. The Tube. Yep. And The Chart Show. Yep. And I got you excited while we talked about each and every one of them. You did, but I've brought along Top of the Pops. Yeah, I know. You got quite excited at Top of the Pops. Yes, because obviously Top of the Pops is going to fucking win because it's the best pop TV show ever, isn't it? Well, it may get on, not. Get win. on with it. Let's go through the shows and see. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. I'm biting my nails in anticipation. So, Ready, Steady, Go. Yeah. I was genuinely excited by your description of that show. Yeah. The way it brought the zeitgeist of music. And at a time, 1963, where the music scene is changing all around us. Sounds absolutely incredible, that show. Yeah. So, yeah, I really want to see that recreated on Cracking TV. So you've done really, really well there. Good. The Old Grey Whistle Test. Now, obviously, it's a legendary show. Ran for many years. And, you know, Whispering Bob Harris. I once walked past him as I was leaving Radio 2 and he was walking in and he said, hello, lovely bloke. Oh, that's nice. So, you know, I could commission it just for that reason. But it is a bit too beard scratchy, isn't it? I think so. So, look, it's it's not my favourite of the ones I pitched. So, I think we're going to have to say no to the old grey whistle test. Okay. Sorry, Bob. Now, you then pitch the tube, and we're back to full-on anarchy. This is right up your street. It is right up my street. It is exactly the sort of TV I like. And, you know, you pitch Ready, Steady, Go against the tube. Both of them, they've got this live zeitgeist feel. But this is the point where I think I can say, while I love your description of Ready, Steady, Go... I'm going to say no to it because I've got The Tube. Okay, I understand. The Tube, just fantastic TV. And I think you're right to say how important it was with Channel 4 being really different, genuinely as a show that changed TV. 
Yeah. It gave us one of the great moments in live TV with ungroovy fuckers. <laughs> yeah. The chart show, on the other hand, as you said at the time, really important in its day. But let's cut to the chase. We're not going to put it on cracking TV when we've got YouTube. That seems fair. So, we're down to the tube or top of the pops. Just let me pitch one last time here to say the tube is more anarchic, more subversive, more progressive and more groundbreaking than Top of the Pops ever was. I agree with all of that. Cool, I win then. But, <laughs> look, Top of the Pops is the world's longest running music show. Yeah. 40 years, it demonstrated the taste in music of the UK. Some of the hosts of Top of the Pops could be terrible. They could be very wooden. The links could be very garbled. Well, I think you're now clutching at straws. I won't deny that The Tube is an amazing show, genuinely innovative, and so many other shows wouldn't have happened without it. Yeah. But it didn't do very well in the quiz. Well, there were very tough questions. I can't help but feel that you have loaded this whole podcast episode against me. I have to look at the evidence, don't I? Top of the Pops is, let's face it, one of the greatest TV shows ever. I'm not going to argue against that. So I'm afraid I've got to say... It's still number one. It's Top of the Pops. I'm sorry, John, you failed to get the commission, so will you please leave my office? I'm sorry for wasting your time, although I can't help but think that in this episode you've been wasting my time. (laughs) I'm just going to leave you with a little message. Have you all got your Cracker Jack pencils? There, stick them up your asses then. Get out. So the best music show won, and I've got one over on John. I hope you enjoyed the show as much as I did. Cracking TV was produced and presented by me, Luke Sluman, and the satisfyingly annoyed John Furlong. Our rather marvellous theme tune was written and performed by Simon McInerney. Luke and John Cracking TV is an IHOG factual entertainment production. It's time to change the channel to Luke and John Cracking TV Luke and John Cracking TV Ungroovy fucker